Here's a message from today's episode's sponsor. Pharmacists need to operate at the top of their license. Is that a challenge or goal your specialty pharmacy is committed to? Providing pharmacists with the data to support patients in a timely manner that improves adherence and persistence is a core service of Spencer Health Solutions. Spencer, our in-home medication management smart hub, provides patients with a simple solution to medication management and ongoing engagement. Our partner pharmacies receive patient data in near real time to support their clinical outreach, including telehealth access. If your specialty pharmacy group is ready to learn about available programs utilizing Spencer to serve patients in clinical trials or commercial pharma programs, visit spencerhealthsolutions.com forward slash partners and connect with us. Spencer Health Solutions, the future of patient engagement from the home. You're listening to the Pharmacy Podcast Network. Pharmacy benefit managers, better known as PBMs, are responsible for negotiating payment rates for a large share of prescription drugs distributed in the United States. Recently, state Medicaid systems, policymakers, and national pharmacy associations have expressed concern that certain PBMs' business practices may not be consistent with public policy goals to improve the value of pharmaceutical spending. This podcast series is all about PBM reform. Listen to the discussions, share these podcasts, and help build a new pharmacy payer system, which supports our independent community pharmacies, encourages fair and transparent competition in the marketplace, and most importantly, is designed to deliver the best patient care. Pharmacy Podcast Nation, welcome back to the PBM Reform Podcast. This has been a great way to get information out of the escalating, changing, and transforming um, mechanism of what it is to be paid as a pharmacy, as a pharmacist, the expansion of the role of pharmacists, the, um, the, the workflow and work uh, burnout and staffing issues that we're all going through nationwide, it's all tied back to how pharmacy benefit managers have hijacked um, our pharmacy profession in many ways. And regardless of that, we are thriving and surviving. And it's because of passionate people out there who believe in the pharmacist role in healthcare, and more importantly, the impact that pharmacy care has on our nation. 330 million Americans out there, 300,000 active pharmacists out there. Um, that means that pharmacists have to turn and do a lot more and be able to be paid for doing what they were designed and went to school for. So I take pride in bringing to the Pharmacy Podcast Network experts in the field of PBM reform, and I'd like to take the opportunity to welcome our guests. And he is not a um, uh, he's not a stranger to the Pharmacy Podcast, like like Chevy Chase, and how many times he was a a guest host on Saturday Night Live. He um, Antonio Chacha may be the leading guest that we keep bringing back to the Pharmacy Podcast Nation. Um, I'm excited to have him and also Mark Bloom. Um, both individuals are recognized experts in and around the pharmacological and pharmacy industry world um, where they uh, intersect and dig into and really quest to find the innovative solutions and address the rising cost of healthcare and what PBMs have done in crushing um, many aspects of pharmacy care, which is really frustrating. And today we want to talk about Pharmacy benefit managers and bring this up to date. The recently passed Inflation Reduction Act in the recent 
action by the Federal Trade Commission with regards to PBMs. This is exciting. I feel like it's chips in the armor that we've been waiting for, and it's time to dig in, and it's time to uh, do everything we can in our power to reconstruct uh, payment models for our uh, pharmacy care and healthcare in general. Antonio Chacha, he is the president of Three Access Advisors, a firm that is among many things, um, they study uh, drug pricing and was recently featured on NBC's Today Show talking about the lengths PBMs um, force independent pharmacies to go to find savings for their patients. He's also spoken publicly about PBMs in the context of the Inflation Reduction Act, which we're going to dig into. And I also want to um, welcome, who um, this is his first time on the Pharmacy Podcast uh, Nation and Network, um, Mark, is the, Mark Bloom is the Executive Director of America's Agenda, an organization that has led since its founding in uh, 2005, America's Agenda, a national healthcare alliance that brings together labor unions, businesses, healthcare providers, and policymakers who share a common commitment to smart policy and effective action. And Mark, um, it was is proud to have him here. He was a former member of the Quality Task Force in the state of New Jersey and previously worked as an economics professor. I can't think of two better people to bring us up to speed in what is um, the, um, the PBM reform and how we're continuously kind of evolving and, like I said, chipping away at the armor. Welcome back, Antonio. Um, it's great to have you here. Great to be with you again, Todd. Mark Bloom, thank you so much for being our guest and being part of this conversation. It is wonderful to have you. Great to be with you. All right. So before we get into the Inflation Reduction Act and recent actions by the FTC with regards to drug pricing, um, we really want a refresher course for our listeners on what PBMs are and why they have been under the microscope lately. Antonio, set the stage for us just in case um, we're catching a lot of our listeners up. Well, decades ago, we didn't really cover prescription drugs under the insurance benefit. There was no such thing as a pharmacy benefit as a whole. Pharmacy, as uh, sometimes people will call pharmacies retail pharmacies, and that's because pharmacies were traditional retail establishments where they carried a variety of products and ultimately had to make sure they were pricing those products in a way that's congruent with the needs and desires of their customer base. So if something was too expensive or the quality of the service was not good enough, the patient would go somewhere else. Or at the time, they would forego getting the medication altogether. That wasn't necessarily a good thing, right? We need medicine in order to stay, stay well. And so those who were covering overall health benefits for patients said we need to start integrating prescriptions into our coverage. And so PBMs were brought in to help start facilitating that transaction to identify covered persons and then match them with covered medications and pharmacy providers to receive those covered medications. Uh, PBMs essentially acted as the Visa or MasterCard of the prescription drug transaction. Uh, over time, as medicines got more and more expensive and as coverage grew, we looked to PBMs to not just pay the invoice, but to start negotiating the invoice to say, hey, maybe this medicine is too expensive, or hey, maybe we can find a more efficient solution or find a better provider. And so PBMs went from just processing the claim to actually 
negotiating the claim. Sounds all really good, right? You know, we need access to medicine, but we want it at an affordable price, and PBMs were brought in to help facilitate that. Over time, that got really complicated because PBMs began to develop conflicts of interest that distorted their previous role of solely working to control the cost of medicines. Now PBMs started getting paid and compensated by drug manufacturers in exchange for covering their medicines in the first place, creating a dynamic that actually inflated the prices of medicine in competitive classes of drugs. Then PBMs started opening their own pharmacies and now making money off the very transaction they were hired to control at, downs at the downstream level. Today, PBMs have grown so large that they are larger than the drug manufacturers and pharmacies they were hired to control. Those Fortune 15 companies are now buying up pharmacies, buying up insurance companies, buying up wholesaler uh, channel conflicts as well. So those small little efficient claims processors of the 60s and 70s have grown into multi-billion dollar corporations that now live at the epicenter of everything having to do with the prescription medication. That's a wonderful intro, uh, Antonio. Um, you soak in this. So this is just part of probably um, what you see like Neo saw in the matrix, it just understands every facet of it. So uh, very excited to have you here. Mark, I wanted to get your perspective on some of the recent federal actions that are at very least have awoken that large percentage of the populace to the PBMs issue and um, have been plaguing our prescription uh, drug environment in the costs. And we're talking about the recent Federal Trade Commission proceedings and the Inflation Reduction Act. And you know, while there's a long way to go before any sense of victory can be claimed um, by those uh, advocating for um, more transparency, which is good for everybody um, in this process, we can take um, we can take peace in, in the fact that PBM issues are now finally getting the recognition uh, that they need on Capitol Hill. People are taking this seriously. They realize that this is definitely a public health crisis. Mark, I'm so excited to have you here and get your insights. Well, thanks for that great question. The Inflation Reduction Act was a victory of education, uh, raising awareness that there's a PBM problem, but I think it would be hard to describe it as a victory in reining in the kinds of excesses of PBMs that, that Antonio described. You know, PBMs are essentially arbitrageurs. They practice arbitrage. As Antonio described, they are intermediaries, large billion-dollar corporate intermediaries in the prescription drug market. And they intermediate in several directions. They are really multi, multi-dimensional chess players in terms of how they intermediate. They sit in between manufacturers and employer health plans or union and employer health plans, buying drugs from the manufacturer and reselling them to the plants. Their value proposition was in the 60s and 70s, the day the days Antonio talked about was that we can process your drug claims like a credit card. That's a great analogy. Uh, we can also save you money because we can aggregate demand from lots of small demanders and use that volume of demand to negotiate, to bargain down manufacturers' uh, uh, list prices. And when we get the net prices low enough, 
we'll pass those savings on to you. Consumers win, PBMs will provide a great service. Arbitrageurs don't do that. Arbitrageurs exercise their market power, and it is very concentrated, as Antonio pointed out. We're talking about 80% of all drug claims in the United States processed by just three PBMs. That's tremendous market power. They do indeed leverage their market power to drive down uh, uh, the cost of drugs, the net cost of drugs. Problem is, rather than passing them on to consumers, they have, over the last several decades, developed numerous sophisticated and taught indeed not very transparent ways to divert those savings into their own bank accounts rather than passing on to consumers. So we come back to the, the, uh, the act, the Inflation Reduction Act. What the Inflation Reduction Act does in terms of the capping of out-of-pocket costs for diabetes drugs in Medicare, that's really an important deal. It recognizes that PBMs, in fact, are not creators of value for consumers. In fact, they're drivers of cost to consumers. The Senate Finance Committee did a really insightful study on the behavior of, of, uh, of PBMs in actually incenting manufacturers of diabetic of diabetes drugs to offer only their higher price drugs and not their clinically equivalent lower price drugs because the higher price drugs enable the PBMs to extract a larger profit margin. They wouldn't put cheaper drugs on the preferred tiers of the, of the, uh, of the formulary where co-pays were lower because those weren't profitable for the PBMs. And so the, the Inflation Reduction Act basically operates on that and says, okay, for a range of diabetes drugs, no more than $35 uh, out of pocket or a coinsurance payment, uh, which uh, uh, should not exceed the equivalent of $35, whichever's less. So a great step forward in basically limiting the out-of-pocket expenditure of the diabetes patient. But the health plan, whether it's in this case, it's Medicare, but if that same principle were applied across the board, basically the health plans are still paying, the premiums are still going up. In fact, the cost of Medicare will continue to rise because of this. We haven't actually solved the problem with the uh, IRA, the Inflation Reduction Act. We haven't really solved the problem that the PBM arbitrage business model is driving up cost of drugs, and that makes access to drugs more, express, uh, more expensive for the payer, whoever it is. However, it is a recognition that we've got a PBM problem. Houston, we have a PBM problem. The Senate recognizes it. They've taken the first step to articulating that recognition in this law, but they have not taken a major step towards solving the PBM problem in diabetes, in diabetes medication alone, let alone the whole array of, of, uh, of drugs, particularly chronic disease um, maintenance drugs uh, that, um, uh, that are plaguing Americans in terms of affordability. So there's a lot more to go, but you've got to start with recognizing there's a problem. The IRA expressed the recognition by the Senate and the House of Representatives and the president that we got a problem. That's a step forward. Yeah, uh, Todd, I'll, I'll, I'll build on that. You know, every large piece of policy is always a mixed bag, right? You know, there's some good, there's some bad, there's some in-between. Well, the IRA, as Mark expertly indicates, it's a great admission, tacitly or not, 
that we have a major issue with the inflated nature of prescription drug prices, largely as a result of this exemption to the federal anti-kickback statute that allows drug makers to engage in pay-to-play with PBMs. Well, the rise, the prices of drugs are going up. As Mark indicated, you got a, a vial of insulin whose list price could be around $300. The actual amount the drug maker is bringing in is less than 40. Um, that shows you there is a pricing problem, right? We're not getting the benefit of market competition when it comes to how the manufacturers are setting the price because of these backroom deals that have been allowed by the exemption of the federal anti-kickback statute. So uh, the Inflation Reduction Act acknowledges this problem by capping insulin out of pocket at $35 and then broadly setting out of pocket limits to the tune of $2,000 over an annual, uh, annual uh, timeframe for seniors on all medications. That is excellent. Todd, as you know, and a lot, as your, a lot of your listeners know, affordability can be one of the biggest challenges when it comes to making a patient stay adherent to their medications. So congratulations, the Inflation Reduction Act takes a very necessary, necessary Band-Aid and slaps it over top of that problem by making sure that the patients aren't exposed to these overinflated prices. But that doesn't solve it for anybody outside Medicare. All right, and a majority of us receive our coverage through commercial health insurers, commercial health insurers, where high deductible health plans are now the majority type of offering within that sector. So we're all still paying the overinflated amounts. We've just given that benefit to seniors, rightly so, right? That, but the other rub on the Inflation Reduction Act is that they ended the exemption uh, or the, the the repeal of the exemption to the federal anti-kickback statute. So the previous administration had said hey, we're not going to allow for these kickbacks to occur anymore. The Inflation Reduction Act actually wiped that policy away, further entrenching the era of kickbacks and rebates in perpetuity. So the very reason that we needed these, these, these copay caps in the first place was that the medicines are so overinflated. The very policy that inflates them was codified in the Inflation Reduction Act. So the problem will we should expect will only get worse over time. Yeah, that's I couldn't agree with you more. I, I would only expand to say that the IRA laid out protections to assure greater affordability for Medicare beneficiaries, but the overall cost of the drugs isn't impacted and Medicare is still paying for those costs. So the federal government's problem of the affordability of the Medicare program itself is not significantly impacted by the IRA. It's the out-of-pocket affordability to individual patients that's impacted. Uh, we still have a, if, if we're concerned about the moving forward fiscal solvency of the Medicare program, and we should be, um, the IRA doesn't tackle that problem. Uh, and PBMs are major drivers of that problem. So we still have, a lot more discussion, but I couldn't agree with, with Antonio more about what he said or about the notion that the IRA represents historic milestone in terms of recognition of the problem. You know, we have um, Hollywood and movie makers and, of course, Netflix all jumping into documentaries and explaining things to the public, uh, like Dope Sick, for example, that really helps the public from an entertaining perspective be educated on what's really happening under their noses. And I think of The Big Short. This was an amazing film that really dissected the housing crisis of, of, 
of what we went through in the in what was known as the Great Recession, that 2015 film ad- adaptation of Michael Lewis's best-selling book. Uh, Antonio, I want to see someone play you <laughs> and really dissecting what is you know the PBM world and and really making it an interesting you know, a movie and put some of that flair behind it. And I don't know who would play you, uh, Antonio, but I want to see that movie on Netflix. Antonio should play Antonio. <laughs> Nobody can do it. Well, let's Nobody not, let's not pretend like we, like we need that type of, that, that type of salesmanship. Uh, arguably it's already here, right? Mark Cuban has put this problem on the map, right? And it's weird because no, everyone complains about drug prices, but nobody's TikToking about PBMs, right? Nobody until Mark Cuban came in and basically cleared a lot of the fog. And now, obviously, you know, we're talking about you know Mark Cuban Cost Plus Drugs, which is a mail order pharmacy and not necessarily a PBM disruptor. It's a it's a it's a supply chain disruptor for sure. But it's so interesting that. Mark Cuban has come in and made the nuance of drug pricing sexy, or at least somewhat interesting. You know, Todd, in the past, maybe on our, on our first podcast that we ever did together, man, we rewind the tape. You say PBM, most people are going to fall asleep immediately. Yep. And one thing that's been really refreshing over the last couple of years um, is that it's becoming a little bit more part of the common vernacular. And, and Mark Blooms had a big role in that as well with the PBM Accountability Project. What was once totally misunderstood is now a lot more known than it used to be five years ago. Yep. And what's coming out of this is the impact that it's having on our pharmacists and the pharmacist ability and the barriers between the pharmacist and the patient to get things done, including the work, um, the workforce burnout, that it's so funny to see the big red um, pharmacy out there who's eating their young based on their profit model that focuses on nothing but profits instead of focusing on this balance between healthcare cost. There's nothing wrong with generating profit, but certainly not at the level that they are. And now their pharmacists are falling ill. They're, you know, they're calling off, they're quitting They're And, and now we have, if you go out and put in pharmacist workflow crisis in Google, you'll find all of these, you know, stories that are being done on local pharmacies and, and, and national chains and different things where pharmacists, we have a, a, a burnout issue. We have a workforce issue and it all comes back to this imbalance of what's happening in the world of PBMs right now. Mark, can we talk more about the report that your group, the PBM Accountability Project, commissioned based on the research conducted in collaboration with the data analytics from Antonio's team, 3Access right. Advisors? Yeah, it was a great collaboration, I must say, uh, between uh, our organization and uh, Antonio's um, analytics, the analytics engine and the team to run that engine that that that, that Antonio has has led. Um, essentially, what we did was, what we set out to do was to explain the PBM business model, the money flows. We started out by understanding the business model to this extent. We knew that these arbitrageurs, PBM corporate middlemen between the transaction between the manufacturer and the health plan also were arbitrageurs 
between the manufacturer and the pharmacist. Uh, again, what arbitrageurs do is they buy cheap and they sell expensive. Or in this case, they reimburse pharmacists uh, less uh, in many cases than the cost of the medications they're dispensing. And then there are also arbitrageurs between the pharmacist and the employer uh, or public sector health plan. That's what spread pricing is in that sector. They reimburse less than they charge the health plan. So it is a perfect storm of uh, uh, for the PBM, a, a, a perfectly uh, vicious cycle for the consumers. It's virtuous if you're in the business of making profit. You're making profit from three different transactions. But within each of those transactions, the PBM has developed multiple ways of extracting profit from the same transaction. So what we set about to do in that article was look at the PBM model, look at the multiple ways that PBMs extract gross revenues and net revenues from the same transaction. When a consumer, a patient goes to buy the drug, how does the PBM make profit from that drug? And there's multiple concurrent ways that they make profit. We were interested in that question because legislators historically have identified the most conspicuous uh, game that they may have been aware of at that time and focused regulation on closing down that game. Uh, in the private sector, savvy negotiators have tried to close down the game that they're aware of, yet PBM profit margins didn't fall and prescription drug prices didn't fall. What we understood was PBMs were much more nimble, much more adept at creating new ways of extracting profits from prescription drug transactions than regulators could narrow or close down abusive ways or predatory ways of extracting profits. And so what we want to do is look at the whole picture, the multitude of ways concurrently. And I want to emphasize that concurrently because PBMs are very creative and continue to be creative in creating new ways to extract profits as regulators and legislators become aware of how they're doing it today. So we collected all the publicly available data, all the reporting data from the PBM industry uh, available for three years, the most recent three years uh, available at the time we published the article last December, so 2019, 17 to 2019, that three-year period. So in that period, focus of regulators, legislators, the uh, those uh, advocates that were looking at transparency were focused on retention of rebates. Rebates are the discounts that Antonio talked about. A PBM uh, takes the list price of a drug, negotiates a discount. It's a rebate. PBMs uh, uh, would be expected if they are operating in the interest of their customers to pass those discounts on to their customers. But it's well known they didn't. So after discussion about this practice on Capitol Hill, after many state legislators looking at the practices of retaining rebates that ought to be coming through to customers, um, uh, in the private sector, corporate negotiators with PBMs getting very savvy and demanding greater pass-through of of, of rebates, less retention, PBMs responded. Over the three years we looked at, there was a 64% reduction in retention of rebates. PBMs increased pass-through of rebates by 64%. Impressive. So did anybody's drug prices go down? Yeah. Did 
Was it a 64% drop? Of course it wasn't. In fact, we saw a 13% increase in profitability. At the same time, they gave up 64, huge victory on the legislative front in states across the country in private sector negotiations. And yet profitability still continued to go up by billions of dollars. How could this be? Well, in our report, we looked at the other components of PBM revenues. So first component uh, is looking at non-administrative fees charged to manufacturers, but they're also charged to, to, to uh, uh, purchaser plans. Uh, just non-administrative fees, what's that mean? Insight, quick newsflash, it's another way of saying rebate, but it's basically fees charged to manufacturers for the transactions. Those went up by 51% at the same time that retained rebates went down by 64%. Now let's move on to the vertical of looking at, at uh, the uh, pharmacies, particularly specialty and mail order pharmacies that, that Antonio alluded to before. We saw a 13% increase in profit lines of pharmacies that were owned by PBMs, plus virtually 100% steering, that is direction of people that buy specialty drugs from a PBM, that they must uh, uh, buy those from the pharmacies owned by the PBM. So that combination of steering and simply increasing profit margins led to a 13% increase in profits. Then we move on and we look at another bucket. This is an interesting bucket. 40% of the total gross profits earned by PBMs are in a bucket. Well, we know it's in there. We don't know fractionally the relative size of the components, but it's called other sources because that's all PBMs are required to report in that category, other sources of income. That is non-returned re rebates, non-manufacturer, non-administrative fees, non-profit uh, margins in, um, in uh, the uh, pharmacies owned by PBMs, but just another bucket. What does that include? It includes effective guarantees and other forms of clawbacks from pharmacists. It includes spread pricing uh, revenues, that is practicing arbitrage between pharmacies and health plans, and, a numerous, of, uh, and numerous other really questionable business practices uh, they lack transparency as a category. We don't even know what the relative size is of all those different tools and techniques, those strategies for extracting profit. But those increased by 26% in the same period that we saw reduction in retained rebate. Net effect, 64% reduction in retained rebates. That was the cry of the day. And we still see a 13% overall increase in gross profits of PBMs. So our study basically looked at that PBM model, recognized that it's a multi-dimensional whack-a-mole game where you hit one, uh, one mole and several other pop up. In the end, you can't win that game if you're regulating abuses of the PBM. If you're going for transparency in a particular category, the PBM will outmaneuver you in creating new ways to extract profit that are remain uh, untransparent um, you simply can't win that game that way. You've got to look at a global solution. And in this discussion, at some point, we'll be looking, I think, we'll be discussing uh, solutions. But the idea of regulating the particular games PBMs play to extract profit is a loser's game if you're a regulator or a legislator. So that's what our article was about. Excellent, Mark. Thank you. And talking about some of those solutions, um... Antonio, I want you to kind of chime in and, and give our listeners updates on on what is happening in the Game Changer initiatives of many of the state outcomes, um, starting with Arkansas, obviously, 
and um and and any any good news and any of like i said the continuing cracks in this model so that we can get this under control and transform our pharmacy industry well todd i've said this a, uh, a number of times but you know the pathway to a better world when it comes to efficient purchase of pharmaceuticals high quality high service etc high access is ultimately going to come from three main buckets and that is legislation, litigation, and market-based solutions. So what's, what's happening on the legislation front? More and more states are moving towards the path of transparency in their Medicaid programs and overhauling them. As we speak, Ohio is on the cusp of launching their single PBM, which was born out of the learnings from our spread pricing, our effective rate clawback, and our specialty pharmacy steering problems that occurred essentially one after another. In Ohio, after we blew the whistle on PBMs paying low, billing high, and pocketing the difference through what we would typically call spread pricing, they found $245 million of gap in a single year of our Medicaid program that PBMs were taking under the table. The state understandably said, that's horrible. We need to fix that. We did. That's not a service that we wanted to buy. And so they said, we're outlawing that practice of spread pricing and moving to what we call pass-through pricing. After that happened, pharmacies started getting paid more and paid more and more. And the phone calls started coming in saying, Antonio, you fixed it. Thank you so much. We're finally able to pay our bills. The problem was, is their contracts never changed. So pharmacies just started getting paid more and more when in fact their contracts with the PBM said they would be yielded quite less. What ended up happening was the PBMs were purposely overpaying the pharmacies at the point of sale, big, building up an excess that they would have the right to claw back later, sometimes months if not a year later, what we call an effective rate reconciliation or a true up. So they were inflating the prices that were reported back to Medicaid and just harvesting the spread on the back end of the transaction instead of the front. In addition, what we found was that pharmacies started getting significantly overpaid on a small subset of drugs. Traditionally, what we would identify as generic specialty products. Pharmacies started making thousands of dollars on individual claims for products like generic Levec and generic Zolota. Well, certainly some pharmacies who were fortunate enough to be dispensing those products because one of the managed care plans had an open network what we found was that a majority of the prescriptions for those overpriced medications were in fact being dispensed by pharmacies owned by the PBMs. So the PBMs were happy to overpay for medicines when they were traditionally the ones predominantly dispensing those medicines. So the long and short of it is, is that PBMs are able to use a multitude of ways to create financial benefit, both upstream and downstream within the transaction. What Ohio learned and what other states are still in the process of learning is that PBMs have an inherent conflict of interest when they get to set the prices, but also receive the prices at the end of the transaction as dispensers. So what Ohio did is they fired those old PBMs, they brought in a transparent one, and they moved to benchmark pricing, where this, they created an actual acquisition cost, married that with NADAC to essentially set a basis for determining the cost of the drug, and then setting a significantly higher dispensing fee relative to what existed in the past, and then moving to a model where the pharmacy is intended to be paid 
the full cost of the drug, and a fee that is commensurate with the service being rendered. So all of a sudden, the games are going to be gone. There's no ability for the PBM to engage in arbitrage because all of those conflicts have been removed. And so when we look at state legislation across the country, most of it is targeted at isolating or removing, or at least making transparent, all those instances where PBMs might have a conflict of interest, whether that be through steering, through manipulation of MAC pricing, abusive audits, anything that is essentially allows them to profit off the transaction they were hired to control are being slowly but surely eliminated in states across the country. Now, what's the second bucket? Litigation. As we speak, states across the country are settling cases with Centene over allegations of fraud, waste, and abuse related to the spread pricing activities within the Medicaid programs that started in Ohio, but extrapolated to every state across the country where Centene does business. In addition, in Ohio, uh, the Ohio Bureau of Workers' Compensation is in active litigation against their PBM over alleged overcharges, as well as the State Highway Patrol Fund. Other states are doing their own inquiries, audits, and even looking at litigation as well. And then when we look at market-based solutions. We're seeing the rise of disruptor PBMs, Imsana RX, Capital RX, Mark Cuban Cost Plus Drug Company, Blueberry Pharmacy, Freedom Pharmacy, Scripco, pharmacies that have pulled out of the insurance system and by doing so are able to offer lower prices than those cost-cutting middlemen were able, ever able to do. It's bananas to me that Fortune 15 companies whose existence is predicated on offering lower prices to the consumers and the plan sponsors are getting laps run around them by small mom and pop pharmacies who don't have a fraction of the leverage that those companies do, yet the Kyle McCormick's of the world and the Nate Huxes of the world and the Alex Oshmianskis of the world are able to step into a marketplace with no leverage whatsoever and beat the pants off those legacy PBMs when it comes to prices. So the, the wind is at our backs in terms of the, our ability to actually achieve better affordability and value when it comes to the purchases of medicines. And that disruption effort, I think you can, you can count on growing and expanding in the future, especially as PBMs see the, the, the bright light of the Federal Trade Commission shining brightly in their faces. Mark, what are some of your ideas in moving forward, things that can be implemented at the state and national level, and a call out to our independently owned um, pharmacies out there who literally have that 19,000 placement area of the entire nation. There's 19,000 plus of them out there. Um, that's bigger than any of the major chains, and I think there's more power in that than what people realize. It's just a matter of taking what's been taught and what's been um, researched by organizations like what Antonio leads and what you lead, Mark, and really putting it to practice. So what are some of your ideas in moving forward? Well, I think I think Antonio gave a good overview uh, looking uh, at those three kinds of elements of a comprehensive strategy. Let me try and parse it a, a different way. If we're looking at public policy, we've been discussing uh, quite a bit today about the games PBMs play, they, the way they extract revenues from pharmacists, from, from health plans, from, from uh, consumers, and actually from other actors in the, in the supply chain, uh, concurrently in the same transaction. Um, they are, uh, as arbitrageur intermediaries, uh, they are 
disrupting, actually creating great dysfunction in the marketplace, uh, preventing the marketplace from a, achieving socially beneficial outcomes, which is how we want transparent competitive markets to, to operate. Um, so looking at solutions to restore competition in the marketplace is one part of a strategy, one, one corner of what the PBM uh, uh, Accountability Project uh, uh, focuses on. Uh, it's, it's one pillar of our strategy, if you will. Um, uh, the reverse auctions, the PBM reverse auctions, which uh, have been conducted in, uh, in New Jersey twice, uh, was just completed successfully in Minnesota, uh, where indeed the, Far the Independent Farm Association was a, was a member of the campaign and, and supported it. Uh, the reverse auction that will be conducted shortly in, in Colorado was essentially this. It was essentially a recognition that PBMs don't really compete. They are oligopolies. Uh, they're just a few uh, large ones. Um, oligopolies, uh, uh, when they operate to collude over price setting, are illegal. Uh, antitrust legislation uh, 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 prohibits that kind of behavior. It's hard to argue uh, or to, to collect direct evidence of collusion unless PBMs were to sit in the same room and fix prices. They typically don't. They operate in a kind of a price leadership model where they follow the leader in a particular transaction or market segment. The effect is the same. Uh, it leads to much higher than the equilibrium price you'd expect in a competitive market. But we don't know. Consumers don't know the price in the end because of the difference between list and net price, which we discussed earlier, but also because prices are enormously complex to calculate. You're talking about a formulary with hundreds, even thousands of drugs. The drug prices themselves are determined by multiple variables, and those are constantly fluctuating over time. So the reverse auction concept is to say, we want to use technology to create a competitive marketplace. The complex price algorithms that PBMs bring to us um, are uh, make it very difficult to talk meaningfully about the price of a drug plan, but we can talk, we can calculate the cost of a drug plan if we know utilization patterns for population, if we can assume based on historical data the likely inflation rate, uh, uh, if we uh, can uh, uh, assume a formulary, because of course PBMs come to bidders, each PBM with its own profit maximizing formula, and those formularies differ as PBMs leverage different kinds of assets in order to maximize profit. Uh, so if we can assume inflation, utilization patterns with large groups, certainly that's relatively stable, and, um, and we can uh, uh, assume a projected price trends from each PBM bid, if PBMs are bidding on a contract which is not defined by them, but defined by the consumer, uh, and it's an optimized contract, uh, at least at any particular point in time, Big data analytics, we're in the 21st century now, should enable us to project very quickly what the projected cost of that bid will be. And so the reverse auction says, let's do that. And then let's take the costs and project them transparently for the purchaser and for the PBM that's making the bid and also for the PBM's competitors who are also making bids. They are bidding against each other transparently. Your transparency has real effective meaning, operational meaning. The, transparent projected costs of each PBM's bids. They're ranked against one another. PBMs look at them. They have an opportunity to rejigger their algorithms and try and bid again. Come back in two weeks, 
bid again and will re-rank. And over multiple rounds of bidding, uh, PBMs, instead of trying to a selected PBM, enter into a negotiation with a purchaser, a corporation, a state, a state department, where they outgun the purchaser. Here, PBMs actually have to outgun each other uh, using their own pricing engines, uh, manipulating their own algorithms. Over multiple rounds of bidding, our hypothesis is we could reduce the, the, the competitive marketplace constructed by homogenizing the product. You need that in a competitive marketplace. It's our contract, not your respective contracts. We're not comparing apples to lemons to oranges. It's all our banana. And then calculating quickly what the projected cost, the price facsimile is, we create a competitive marketplace. Our experiences, on average, we're dropping the net cost of a prescription drug formulary by about 20% when that's introduced. Uh, when that's when the, after the reverse auction is conducted, where an incumbent has been established uh, with the plan. So that's only the beginning of taking back the costs. That also doesn't solve the PBM problem. It takes oligopoly PBMs with all the distortions in pricing and incentives uh, that they embody. It takes those PBMs and puts them into a more competitive environment. And the result is the consumer wins. It's an eBay in reverse, prices fall. In New Jersey, $2.5 billion came back to taxpayers, the health plan beneficiaries uh, over a five-year period, a half a billion a year. Uh, in Minnesota, that reverse auction was just completed um, in this summer, was completed in July, 27% uh, savings. Uh, now, PBMs are getting much more sophisticated in terms of how they play reverse auctions. Just to give you an example, they're infinitely creative, uh, more creative than 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 uh, regulators, legislators, or developers of reverse auctions are typically. Um, in Minnesota, the incumbent PBM suddenly overperformed by 23% the year the reverse auction is done. No one in the region of the country had a 23% overperformance. That PBM had never had one not with that customer. It was unheard of, but coincidentally it happened. And their argument was the reverse auction didn't create 23% increased savings, actually 27%, but 23 of it through their own overperformance. It happened coincidentally, therefore they should win the reverse auction. The reverse auction ended up, the bidding between PBMs ended up focusing on who would guarantee that level of overperformance every year of the subsequent contract period. So. Interesting application of a competitive marketplace, as Antonio pointed out, to to addressing uh, the uh, uh, or to redirecting the value that PBMs in fact create in their in their dealings. A second approach that focuses more at actually solving the PBM problem rather than managing the current problem in a competitive marketplace is a market design very similar to what Antonio described. Ohio is doing in the Medicaid marketplace. Let me describe it this way. If we want to assert that PBM should provide social good and be able to earn a reasonable profit in producing that social good, then we might define that social good as aggregating demand, negotiating uh, down prices, and passing that savings, that increased value, directly to consumers and they should be paid a service fee for providing that service. In that model, it would be illegal, prohibited for PBMs to earn revenues 
from any other transactions associated with that service. So spread pricing wouldn't be possible. Uh, uh, retained rebates wouldn't be possible. Uh, excessive profits at the specialty pharmacy level wouldn't be possible. In fact, the acquisition costs that a PBM earned, let's say in a given state, would have to be equivalent to what they pay at the next stage in, in, in the chain. Pharmacists would be chart would be reimbursed by the acquisition costs of the PBM plus a fee, a, re a, a, a fee which represented a reasonable payment to the pharmacist for services provided. Very similar to what's happening in Ohio. Extrapolate that model more broadly to the commercial sector. And you actually have a redefinition of, uh, of the PBM business model. Now, I, I just want to talk about the politics of this. When we talk about the reverse auction, it's really interesting. The incumbent PBM obviously hates it because they don't want to take their bid. Uh, we've seen each PBM uh, have an experience in reverse auction of winning back its account from its own client, but doing it at up to 20% lower cost to the client than it previously had. They don't want to go there. But we've seen the PBM industry as a lobby not step forward to oppose the reverse auction in any state that we've operated in. Why? Because the competitors of that PBM, they're not competing over price. They're oligopolies, right? But they're competing for market share. Competitors love it. They have a chance. 95% of, of PBM accounts are in fact, or contracts are renewed with the incumbent because in a marketplace where you don't know price, how do you decide who's the better PBM? It's the one you have a relationship with, the one that's been taking you out to dinner, inviting your leadership to the hunting lodge, taking you on ski trips, um, uh, giving donations to your charities. Um, that's the one you want to do business with. And that's the way business um, uh, happens. Uh, in this world, uh, they each want to play that game to get market share. If they can get on the reverse auction, each gambles that it can win the reverse auction from the incumbent and then build those relationships to maintain the account. So in that world, the lobby has sort of seen differential uh, attitudes towards the reverse auction from its PBMs and has not staked out a position imposing PBMs. Uh, it's hard to say we're against having competitive marketplace, right? That, that, that dog don't hunt. Um, but if we move to the second uh, solution that I'm talking about, redefine the PBM business model so that PBMs are paid a fair price for providing the service, but are prohibited from extracting revenues from other sources. In that world, it's really a dagger at the heart of the oligopoly arbitrage PBM business model that we've been discussing today. You can expect the PBM industry will organize against that, but you also should have hope it is possible to take them on and win as you've done in Ohio. Um, very effective. Remember, PBMs have lots of money, but they don't have a political constituency. People don't even know who they are. Now we're changing that some, but when you find out who you are, who they are, you don't like them. So Politically, we can win this battle, but we have to be prepared to know they're coming at us with lots of money. And uh, electeds, policymakers who are looking at money rather than socially beneficial policy for the constituents they represent are going to be very vulnerable to payments from PBMs. But I believe most electeds actually intend. Uh, the welfare of the public they represent. They don't see themselves as special interest representatives in exchange for campaign contributions. Antonio has demonstrated that in Ohio, and I believe that's the model for other states in the country. There's a third vector that we touched on 
and that is antitrust. And all of your listeners are aware that after years of voting not to proceed to investigate uh, the potential violations of federal antitrust law by vertically integrated oligopoly, non-competitive PBMs, finally, this past year, the Federal Trade Commission voted to actually open investigation. The most recent comments by the commissioner are very, very hopeful. He's, he said the FTC over the last years has been looking at fairness, at fairness doctrines in the marketplace. And fairness almost always has inured to the benefit of large corporations like PBMs. His administration is going to look strictly at violation of antitrust law. And he believes that the PBM industry may be case number one in that refocusing of what the FTC does to enforce antitrust law. That is really hopeful because as Antonio has described, we're talking about large, vertically integrated oligopolies that operate to increase pricing as monopolies and oligopolies do, rather than to lower prices to make prescription drugs more affordable to, to folks. Beyond that, PBMs have actually emerged as not only vertically integrated in terms of mergers with insurance companies and ownership um, of, of uh, fulfillment operations of, of pharmacies, but they've actually opened international operations. Two of the, of the big three PBMs have group purchasing offices, which are offshore, uh, really shielded from oversight uh, by American regulators um, when they have no book of business whatsoever in foreign countries. The PBM business play, let's get really clear, wherever the drugs are manufactured, the PBM business play, the arbitrage, the mediation in marketplaces is in the United States. That's the only place they earn a profit. Why do they need offshore operations? It's to disguise uh, pricing practices. It's to diminish transparency again. It is really important that the Federal Trade Commission look at this entire vertical integration from a GPO office in Denmark or in Dublin uh, right down to the behaviors of PBMs and suppressing competition of independent pharmacists in local communities. Those are our three vectors. It's, it's, it's looking at antitrust law. It's looking at creating greater, more transparent marketplaces, the reverse auction illustration of that. And finally, redefining the business model of PBMs in a way that they can operate and be profitable, but also be socially beneficial players. Thank you, Mark. Thank you so much. In closing, I want to give uh, Antonio our last word and and just thank you both for updating us and getting this information out through our audio publication. This is very important to us. So um, thank you, Mark, for, for being here today. So Antonio, in closing, what is your shout out? We're, we're, we're finishing up with our annual meeting at the NCPA 2022. Uh, we were proud to be there, and we were covering that event as press. Um, lots of energy at that conference, lots of independent pharmacists that are preparing to generate revenue that has nothing to do with a prescription, but it has to do with consultancy, and it has to do with um, point-of-care testing and pharmacogenomics and technology, digital therapeutics. So there's an exciting side to the transformation of pharmacy, but we must have a new payment model um, last word coming from you, Antonio. Yeah, I couldn't agree more, Todd. I mean, uh, I look at pharmacy as the great untapped resource of our healthcare distribution system. Um, they are the most accessible 
and most underutilized healthcare professionals in the marketplace um, will never be able to incent the proper uh, the proper delivery of services and incent proper access to those services if we do not better control what happens on the fundamental bedrock of pharmacy, which is that drug pricing transaction. So once we figure out the right way to pay for pharmaceuticals, what the real cost of a drug is relative to the actual service being performed by not just pharmacy, but PBM, et cetera. Well, once you actually build that, you can put concrete on top of it, right? And now you could start incenting the, re the rendering of services that go beyond the fill, right? The fill is essential. The fill, the service commensurate with the fill is unbelievably essential. But the fill is also a hook where a patient is coming into a healthcare facility. A pharmacy is a healthcare facility on a month by month basis where that is an opportunity for an engagement and an intervention. So point of care testing, doing more chronic disease management, all of those opportunities are there where we can get the pharmacist elevated to do something that today they're not incentivized to be able to do. I do want to give a shout out to our pharmacists who are uh, in the thick of this and the frustration of our community pharmacy owners. Um, there is light at the at the end of this tunnel, and it's a it's a long road. And obviously, the three biggest PBMs don't want to give up their grip and their ability to continue to siphon off the profits that they have that is just unbalanced in putting profits over uh, patient care, and it doesn't make any sense. I want to give a shout out to a group that's putting together a documentary. Um, we mentioned uh, Netflix, and they are shopping a documentary to Netflix, literally, called Would You Like Shots With That? And you can find more about that and support this organization, led by Dr. Anise uh, Webster-Munetti, um, she is a PharmD, and she's wonderful. I've talked with her. We're trying to support her as much as we can. Uh, once again, Would You Like Shots With That? You can find that at wouldyoulikeshotswiththat.com. Um, you can go to their GoFundMe page and fund that documentary. Um, looking forward to seeing this um, this movie documentary come out probably in the next year and a half to two years. But Antonio, um, I love when you come on the show and you talk with us it's a it's just a, a bunch of information that we have to be able to unpack and understand um mark bloom you are um amazing and what you are doing out there in healthcare uh refund rate the re you know invention of healthcare and, and payment models and the research that you bring so a special thank you to you uh, mark and a special shout out and thank you to you antonio Thanks, Doug. Great conversation. Thank you. If you want to learn more about both of these uh, organizations and amazing people uh, fighting for a transformation of our payment models in pharmacy, you will find their information in our show notes. Uh, pharmacist, shout out to you. You are my favorite providers and everything that you're doing for our nation. And with that, we are closing. And uh, keep your head up and um, know that... Uh, there are people out there that are fighting for you and for better patient and pharmacy care. Thank you. PBM reform is not a textbook process. This component of healthcare insurance will take time to figure out and will consist of many different players of the pharmaceutical supply chain. If you'd like to contribute information, data, or your own insights on PBM reform, please contact the Pharmacy Podcast Network. Send your email to publisher at pharmacypodcast.com or call us at 412-585-4001.